First of all, people have been very rude to me online about having eaten the pie. Okay. What, like the pie that I gave you a week ago when we recorded a week ago. <laughs> okay. So here's the story, folks. Um, Laura was delightful enough to bake me, or bake herself really, and I got a few pieces of it. This like, what even was it? It was like a pastry thing? It was uh, basically yes, pie. Yes. The technical it was like term a is that is a slab pie, which is basically yeah. a pie with okay. one and a half times the amount of crust in the shape of a toaster strudel. Okay. So yes. real, I mean, a lot of people in this world bake, but you really should understand that Laura is an elite level baker. Like she really can, like, she's quite the baker, folks. And so the first day I got the pie, she handed it to me. There were a few pieces. I ate most of the pieces right there in my car. That's true. They were very large pieces as well. Uh, um, yeah. So the good felt... thing about the slab pie is that it's portable. Yeah. You can eat it with your hands out of a plastic baggie. Mm -hmm. But so I left one in the plastic bag. And I just, you know how cars are. You leave things in your car. I thought you cause... were going to take it to your wife. Well, sorry, honey. Um, <laughs> if you're um, instead of giving you the fresh pie, I ate it myself a week later after having it sit in my car for a week. Um, it's summer. In 90 I think plus degrees. To point out here. Um, so, but I'm hearing that that was a bad decision. And I, I'll be honest, I didn't actually weigh it at all as a decision when I was making it. I just sort of like <laughs> a pie and just like, because I was like hungry when I came over here. And usually, so when I come record, um, Laura's house is one of the most notorious treat houses you could ever be in. <laughs> you go to Laura's house, there's there's treats all over the place, right? Yeah. Like, you can't walk two inches without having a cookie thrust in your mouth. It's, That's It's very true. It's horrifying in a lot of ways, but... Um, and yet, you persist <laughs> on eating snacks right before you show up. Nevertheless, in a car outside I persisted to eat, <laughs> to eat the pie. Um... So it didn't taste good at all, I'll be honest. Like having said, I kind of, because it was in a Ziploc bag, right? Like, yeah, it was I think, no longer crusty. I think in my head, like the idea was that it was like a cookie or something, that it was just going to be stale. But then I realized mid-snack, like it took me like <laughs> two bites. and You kept eating it? Yeah. I, just, <laughs> I was like, ooh, ooh, this isn't as good. So, I was, <laughs> so hopefully I'm not... Um, rotting my insides with this pie. Um, I would like but... to welcome everybody to this, our last episode of Print Run before Eric dies. Well, we should welcome them for real then. Welcome to this episode of Print Run. Our last, our very last. <laughs> my name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zass. Say hello, Laura. I'm now the instrument of death. The you angel are. of death, yes. You are, and that's good. Um... Today we've got a fun episode for you. We're going to talk about um, libraries and ebooks, which I think is an interesting and pressing topic for the day. Um, we've got a separate discussion to get into here in a sec, but before we get to any of those good things, um, how about the basic rundown? Yeah. So welcome to the first week of August. August is also known as the month in publishing where everybody goes on vacation. Yes. But folks, we're not everybody. <laughs> So we have a whole spate of special episodes coming for you on Patreon, including our regular query show, 
our first pages show. Both of these are critique episodes where we critique first pages and queries respectively um, submitted by real listeners. And then there's real us mm -hmm. and our real thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. So um, definitely listen in on Patreon. And then, of course, we have our third Flex episode that will come towards the end of the month. And that is a special episode topic that is very often suggested or chosen by yeah. our listeners. Yeah, so we haven't picked it yet. It's like early in the month. Um, the last couple months, I thought, actually turned out really well. Well, they we've were... gotten emails yeah. from people who say, yeah. well, we, we got one email from a listener asking about contracts. Yeah. And so a couple months ago, we did agency agreements between agencies and authors. And then this past month, July, we did an episode about the key things to watch out for in a publishing contract right. once your agent brings it to you and right. kind of to kind of understand what all of these clauses mean in terms of publishing and what is industry standard. So first of all, if you have something that you would love for us to cover, send it to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Um, that goes the same with any kind of questions, concerns, queries, first pages, anything else. If you want to talk to me about what color pants you think Eric should be wearing in his funeral, mm -hmm. um, then send that to me because he won't be around to receive it. Bury me in the red chinos. Um, oh, the the <clears throat> tight ones? Oh, the, the, well, they're very tight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, truly though, folks... That third episode, um, you know, we obviously the staple of our Patreon content is the query show and the first pages show, and that's kind of like standard critique fare. But we do have that third one because we want to hear what you guys want to hear about. Like, so please do like be bold, like tweet, like people. One of the best things that happens on Twitter is people tell me what they want to hear us talk about. They and at you. They do, and it's one of the rare situations where I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but it is good, like. We want that third thing to be useful to you, especially because it's, you know, it's paid content, all that kind of stuff. So, like, tell us what you want to hear about in terms of practical publishing knowledge or, any, or anything else. Like, maybe you want it to be impractical, whatever. But send us, you know, send us an idea and you can help steer that third show each month um, and we'll go from there. But all right. I've got a take yeah. to get this show started. Uh. Your um, last take. I'm this. This joke is going to run out of room really quickly, take. so I'm just. That'll be the episode title. We'll yeah, call this the last. The take. last take. Um, but I was thinking about this for a while because um, I just finished a novel that um, I was what, reading. Not reading, novel? not writing. I will never finish my own book. That will be. <laughs> I'll be writing this draft until I'm fifty. Um, but I just finished reading uh, Valeria Lucelli's uh, Lost Children Archive, mm. and. This is a novel that, if you're not familiar with it yet, and if you're not, you should read it. Everyone should read this book. I mean, it is a book that you could quibble with in certain spots. It's not a perfect novel. It's all sorts of things that I think would provoke really interesting discussion. But everybody should read this book. It's really, really good, and it's really, really timely in all the ways you would want. But it's interesting specifically to me because it does some structural things that at first... I found myself in my like industry brain. Like sometimes, and you tell me if you had this experience, Laura, where you're reading something for pleasure, or I, you yep. know, in your case, like you're, you know, I know you do a lot of audiobooks, so you're listening to something for pleasure, and you're hearing something, and you're like, wow, if I heard a writer doing that, or if I was reading a manuscript and a writer was doing those particular things, I would probably be inclined to turn that down. But I love it. Is <laughs> basically the feeling I'm trying to get at here. And the, what I'm pointing to here is what I really loved about this book is that it felt like 
tangential in the best ways. It felt mm. slow in the best ways. Like there are whole chapters of this novel, whole chapters where the main character, all she does is like read a past writer's diary. Yeah, like, but like you would do that in your list. Well, sure. For books but, on your list too. Yeah, but like it's, what's the, well, I'm building to the take here. Okay, okay, sorry. <laughs> I, I derailed the and, take. No, 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 no. Um, because it's, it's interesting. Like I just was reading this book and I was like, man, everything we talk about, on, especially on like, I think of like first pages shows, right? Like where it's like, oh man, where's the plot? That's what we're saying all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like, where's the story? Where's the conflict? Where are these traditional notions of, um, you know, forward momentum, all these things. And that goes missing a lot of the time in this mm. novel. And I'll be honest, I had zero problem with it. I loved it. And it brought me to the following take <laughs> after loving this book. I don't know why I'm clear, clearing <laughs> my throat right then, but I'm, I'm preparing. I think that really good novels should be impossible to make into good movies. Mm. I don't think into that, good movies. Well, yeah, because anyone can make something. You know, you know, I can't control what bad people making bad movies do. Sure, but it just got me thinking about how so often when we're talking about plot and notions of like even like notions of character and scene and all this stuff, it feels like so much of the advice it applies specifically to a version of a novel that mm-hmm. is meant to be very like visual and propulsive and kind of like. Designed in a way that is meant to grab people in the same way you would want a movie to grab people, mm. right? And I just, I've been thinking lately, especially in the wake of this book, which broke so many rules for what I, and that's why, by the way, in book this, right now, it's going to win the man booker. It's on the long list. Um, I will eat my proverbial hat if it does not. <laughs> <laughs> if I'll eat some more moldy pie if it doesn't win the, <laughs> if it doesn't win the man booker. There was I think no it's mold going, on the pie, everyone. Um, you don't know that, but I, <laughs> it's. I think this book is going to win the Man Booker, and I think that more than more importantly than that, um, it just got me thinking about like, like I it was for the first time in a very long time I found myself asking, why don't I hate this? Mm. Which I think is the best question. It's when you work in publishing and you're designed to like hate everything, and it's only like, and that that's that's crass, but like you know, you and I reject most of the things we read, sure. right? You know what I mean? Like most of the content you read per day is something you are going to make a task out of saying no to. Correct. And so, like, I I have trouble trouble reading for pleasure in the opposite way sometimes. But here, I was like, man, I would absolutely be turning this down if it wasn't this well executed. And to me, it just got me thinking, like, the novel is a specific form, right? Like, the novel is something that is not. A, like it's not a visual form. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to you read and imagine, right? Like you read and picture what's on. Like you have to do the work. It's not being shown to you, you know. And it just got me thinking that like, I just, I guess, and I'm interested for you to jump in here. But like, I just found myself thinking, man, maybe like notions of plot and story structure that we usually think about as it re- as it relates probably to like literary fiction. I understand mm-hmm. that this is not a conversation for a lot of you know, other types of, you know, book and things like that. But just, like, as it relates to kind of that most, you know, and I'm using literary in the most obnoxious possible way you can use it, but, like, in the most literary sense, like, there might be something to be said for novels that can't be very easily visually depicted, right? Or that aren't based on moment-by-moment linear tension. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I guess mostly this is the real impetus behind wanting to bring this up is like, I was just really fired up about this book and wanted to talk <laughs> about it and like 
Lucelli is incredible. You should read Tell Me How It Ends. You should read this novel, Lost Children Archive. Like, she's a powerhouse, but, like, I don't know. I just, it got me thinking a lot about, like, story structure and the fact that the novel in and of itself is a unique form that doesn't always have to lend itself to the visual, you know, form that, like, a movie or mm -hmm. a screenplay or a, anything else. You know, I guess, like, the way to put it is it's its own thing. You know, it's words on a page more than it's yeah. something being shown on a film. You know, I guess it just got me thinking about like translations and medium. I don't know. I have a, I have a few thoughts on this and it's, and yeah. it's before I share them, I think it's worth mentioning that I am in terms of the audiovisual media format. I am much more of a, a television person than I am a film person sure. okay. because kind of in the same way that I am a novel person rather than a short story person. Sure. And it's because one thing that I really, really love about television is that you can really play with multiple plots yeah. in a, in a more effective way and you can go deeper into character, which is something room, that I, right? yeah, cause you yeah. have more room, you've yeah. got more, more hours. Right. Yeah. Um, and so my, initial thought like you know and i'm i'm somebody who's always like the book is better than the movie except for i think i enjoyed the lord of the rings movies more than i liked the lord of the rings oh my books god. You, oh my god but, i was worried that i was gonna sound like something <laughs> like people were gonna get mad at my thing well i so hope here's that the thing, lord, is i hope I just, tolkien twitter doesn't find that i just don't <laughs> love tolkien's writing i love his stories but i don't love his writing and so there you go um, I feel that way about a lot I'm, of authors. I'm thinking of like seven or eight different people. I personally know who would put you on a hit list for that take. Great. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take it. Continue. Um, but I am somebody who like recently this year through a like Lord of the Rings extended edition movie marathon where I served a meal for every one of the Hobbit meals so they can come at me and suck it. Um, but, <laughs> and then I think the, the only movie that I really believe is better than the book is the Princess Bride, but the Princess Bride famously was written by the dude who also wrote the novel, and yeah. he very much understood sure. like that they were different mediums, yeah. right? And so yeah. I think, um, I think that in a lot of ways, I I can see where you're coming from there. I think that I'm not gonna go as far as to make a hot take <laughs> that like good books mean bad movies. I do think sure. that in general, like what makes science fiction and fantasy books so exciting mm -hmm. gets lost in the translation to film. Um, yeah, right? Because, like... Yeah. Think, let's let's unpack that for a second, then, because, like, a science fiction or a fantasy novel, it's so reliant on, I guess, what you would roughly call information, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's lore. It's things in the backstory. It's being immersed in something that is largely static and especially as like I again I think about like doing a first pages show for a book like that like so often our edits are things like hey we can't just have all backstory to start this novel right, right? because <clears throat> it just doesn't work as a propulsive technique. but first pages but are not the book that's true and so it's but like you end up having to balance out the fact that people do want to be immersed with the idea that you do want to move forward and so it's like this constant like dichotomy between what you're allowed to do and when. Yeah. And well, I, I find for me, you know, and again, and I'm going to bring up the thing that Eric hates, which is like the anthropological background. Um, I don't hate it. You hate it. I That's just... okay. Uh, but the thing about that is like, I, what I find really rewarding, particularly in fantasy and science fiction is that we are, you're presenting me a whole new world, but you're applying a, 
thought process in a character that it, it is in a lot of ways very, very human, even if the person isn't human, right? And so that way there is that kind of push and pull between what it means to build a culture, but also what it means to be somebody experiencing that. And there's yeah. like a lot of translation that happens there, which is something that different that even the most beautifully built set is not going to do for somebody watching a film. Yeah. Counterpoint to my own, yeah. you know, rant there. Um, I am incredibly impressed with Reese Witherspoon right now. <laughs> and the trans, <laughs> like, honestly, like I, I feel like it takes a uh -huh. very, like, some books are just too complex and they have too many, too, you know, too much world building or too much interiority or too much of something to mean that that um, translation can can happen and be uh, like effective. But mm. I I am very interested and heartened by the like when somebody does it really well and kind of makes a point yeah. of it, you know, yeah. like I am really intrigued by what little fires everywhere. The Celeste Ng book is mm -hmm. going to be with, um, with Reese Witherspoon in it and like producing it. Right. Yeah. She's, she's starring it. Her production company, mm -hmm. um, is they bought the rights to it and they're making the movie and she's the the, the I was gonna mom. Say, the top, my, that was going to be my next question. It's like off the top of your head, you know who she is. Well, she's the she's the she's the rich mom, not yeah. the artist mom. Sure, I can't remember right. what her name is, right. but yes. Yeah. So, like I I find and that book is incredibly reliant on narratives in terms of mm -hmm. what an individual person is experiencing, but I do believe that something like that with a deft hand and somebody who truly understands the literature will be able to do it. And that's kind of, I think, the key, is that you can't just look at something and mine it for movie potential. You need yeah. somebody to like truly understand the concept of, of narrative. And so I think that's also probably one of the reasons why I am one of the three people in the entire world who um, liked the Veronica Mars <laughs> like season finale that just came out. Um, Do people not like it? People hate it, they Eric. Did. I am not Eric, on Veronica Mars Twitter. They, they didn't like it. Hate it. And I think why did that you like they're it? all wrong. Yeah, no, well, I'm not going to give any spoilers, okay. but... But like... Yeah. Structural, like craft wise. Why structurally, like um, so structurally, uh, there it was the the ending. It was the only way that the series could continue. If mm. it hadn't ended the way it was ending, um, then it would have just been purely fan service, and then it was it would be over. So to like leave the door open, basically, mm -hmm. it was it was the only choice there. And yeah. so, and I think I find it very. Um, I find it very hypocritical that everybody got mad at Game of Thrones mm -hmm. for all of the fan service in the last season. Mm -hmm. And then, like, you have a, a Rob Thomas, not of the Matchbox 20, the other Rob Thomas, <laughs> um, who, who, who really, like, takes risks with the storytelling and yeah. really, like, lets his choices have consequences. Uh -huh. And it's not at all fan service. And uh -huh. then everybody gets mad. It's like, you can't have it both ways. So I um, haven't seen the Veronica Mars finale. You should. But you I would actually say, really enjoy it. It's very it's very bleak. I would say that as you describe it, well, way to assume that I just only like bleak things. I know you. Um, but as you describe it, I'm, in terms of the fan service or not fan service, mm -hmm. like, you know, spectrum, I am definitely toward the don't ever do anything for fan service. Correct. Um, 
end of things. And so I'm interested to see yeah. it. But and this is and this is a show, and we're getting off topic now, and we're going to move on yeah, in just okay. a moment. We, this, is, but, this is a loose Monday night. Come on. <laughs> but this is a show that has been re- resurrected not once, but twice. Yeah. First with the sort of fan service-y Kickstarter movie, uh-huh. and then now with this more adult season. And like, yes. Fan service Kickstarter movie is a yes. term I'm going to need to hear. To okay, find. so there were three seasons of Veronica Mars, mm-hmm. and then it was canceled. Uh-huh. And then several years later, a couple years later, I can't remember how many years, um, the fans decided that they wanted it back, and they raised the money to make the movie. They re- Hold on. So they raised the money, and then they gave the money to... Like yes, a movie they, producer. They they gave movie? it to Rob Thomas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the I know. Don't. Yes. So they so they got the movie, and uh, and is it, it was, bad that if I call these people marks, is that wrong? I mean, it got I them the content. Yeah, I guess it got them the content they wanted. Yeah, like it's it not any different than yeah. buying a book. You yeah. know what I mean? Except I you're, you're right. creating no, you're right. it. You're right. You're right. And then okay. so that movie was made, and then it was done. Right? Yeah. Like it, we were done. Right? And yeah. then. Um, and then several years later, Hulu was like, hold my beer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring it back again. Mm-hmm. And so it they brought it back, you know, like 15 years after it initially had started. Um, yeah, because I think the first season was in 2004 when, sure. the, when Veronica Mars was in high school. And now she's, you know, in her mid-30s. And they left the door open for more of it. And it's mm-hmm. like you can't make a narrative choice to, like, make it work. And then people be mad at you for it because yeah. you gave them like a way to get more of what they wanted. I don't know. Okay. So those are my feelings. No, that, those are my feelings. If you're a Veronica Mars stan, um, <laughs> come come get her, folks. Like start at <laughs> her. She's at, at Elzatz. Um, um, you can find yeah. her very easily. I <laughs> like and from like a from like a book perspective, yeah. like from an editorial perspective, yeah. like I didn't like as a fan, <clears throat> I didn't like it. As somebody with narrative and craft and wanting more, I loved it. Yeah. And so there you go. But sure. so anyway, I would like to transition us, Eric, <laughs> into something mm-hmm. um, something we haven't done in a while, but it's something that I was really, really hoping that um, the Southern Hemisphere would provide for Shout us. Shout out to the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> for- we have another edition of What's Going On Down There. <laughs> A segment where we uh, talk segment. through a, a wonky or crazy news story from Oceania. Please tell me what's going on down there, Well, Laura. it's, okay, so um, McDonald's. Uh-huh. In Good start. McDonald's yeah. in New Zealand, mm-hmm. instead of giving toys away in their Happy uh-huh. Meals, are giving away rolled doll books. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That's great. So yeah. that, like, usually, you know, this, this segment is about like bad things. That yeah. Are so so they are. This is a very not... anti-Australia podcast in a way that I did not mean. <laughs> well, for this it to is be. New Zealand. <laughs> These are abridged roll doll books that have like stickers and activities for the kids to complete, and they're giving away. 800,000 of these in like six weeks. Um, but the wow. probably like that's all super, super great. But it also meant that I fig- figured out uh, what all of the rolled doll books are called in, in, in um, New Zealand. And yeah. it's very, very concerning. Wait, they're called something else in New Zealand? Yeah, they have different titles, including Fantabulous BFG for the add, BFG. Hold, hold on a second. 
We just added the word fan. It's fantabulous. Not like fantastic. No, no, no. Fantabulous. Fantabulous BFG. Okay, so this went from like a story I was excited about to a story that I'm now furious at. Right. I'm not done. There's two more. Uh, Amazing Matilda is now, it it took the place of Matilda. Uh Uh-huh. Just like, she's amazing. Okay, so give me the last one. Lucky Charlie Bucket. Instead of, yeah. Instead of, yeah, I know. Lucky Charlie Bucket. That's interesting that, so clearly, before we get back to the actual story, there's like some sort of like market wisdom down in New Zealand that's like. Add an adjective? Yeah, we, we, yeah, you got to have like some sort of adjective in front of these like kind of, you know, younger geared books, but. So they're just giving away rolled doll stuff, huh? Yeah, with stickers. So that's fun. And it's like, you know, I mean, I guess like it's. It's actually amazing that you haven't seen more of that, like out here. You know, apparently like it also happened in Sweden, your homeland, oh, the homeland, the motherland, the motherland. As we call it. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I guess that's an interesting idea. Like, I guess it's it just surprises me as like it seems like something that should have happened by now here. Like the idea right. that um, a publisher would team up with like a chain restaurant or or really any kind of corporation, like teaming up or combining a book with something something else. Like you buy this one thing, you also, you know, you pay a little bit for the book or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like that strikes me as something that should probably honestly happen more just yeah. because books complement all sorts of stuff. Like you, you could see how you could find a new market, you know, just by like... I want BFG but, stickers with my Happy Meal. But that is cool. I wonder how they decided on like BFG or like if someone... I, it feels like the sort of thing that, I mean, I guess without knowing more, like a publisher must have pitched. Yeah, you know, they must... They, it must have been the estate. Yeah, Roald Dahl's yeah. estate That's must have done that deal. So new yeah. plan in life, Eric, <laughs> is to become like successful enough mm-hmm. as an agent mm-hmm. where we get control over a very, very famous children's books author's estate and then license their books to McDonald's for kids in New Zealand. So we did that episode on, like, how should an agency work? You yeah. You know, like a few weeks ago. Scratch that. And yeah. Throw all of that out. <laughs> like, now what we're doing is, like, basically my strategy is going to be, like, find very, very famous, like, children's authors who, like, they're not, like, dead yet. But they will but be. But, like, it's like, if, you know, older person, you know, it's like, you got to get in early. You know, you got to like, you know, set the groundwork for being the person who gets to help with the estate. With the it's promise like, of yeah. when you're dead, we're going to oh, we'll leverage. Get you. We'll get you into Mickey D's. <laughs> we'll get you there. It's good. Don't worry about it. Yeah. We'll get you into Burger King. It's going to be great. We're going to do the whole thing. It's, I'm more of a Taco Bell girl. That's fine. Yeah. You want to live Moss? I'm not going to stop you. But we're going to just, we're going to keep it moving. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> related to giving books to children for free, um, I would like to talk about libraries. <laughs> I've like made a resolution with myself to not talk about the transitions. Anymore. And now you're talking. But that about was transition. so good. That was so good, Lord. Like it was amazing. Like you really hit it well there. Thank you. Um, it, we just derailed my beautiful no, transition. No, 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 no. We did not. Please, please continue. So we did did um, a segment several months ago about just like a little blippy news item about how Macmillan, which is a publisher, big five, publisher, big five yeah. publisher. Um, they have their, their big science fiction fantasy imprint tour. 
um, they were going to they were going to do this pilot program to kind of like test ebooks yeah. and the effect yeah. libraries are having on yeah. their ebook sales. So what they did is called windowing, where <coughs> with tour titles they wouldn't allow their books to be sold to libraries until a certain period had elapsed. Yeah. So the idea is is that that like big release day crush. Um, People would go to their libraries and they wouldn't be there, so they would buy the book, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so apparently the results of that windowing experiment have come in, and Macmillan is going to be applying a version of this to all of their books going forward. So what they're doing is, um, so like putting a pin in that for a second. Yeah. Let's just talk about the mechanics of ebook lending in libraries. Please. So, with a physical book, right? It is a physical book. Like you, one person can check that book out at a time, mm -hmm. and when a library buys it, like that's that's what they have. That's you know what's available. And if it degrades, then they have to buy a new one, or they just won't get another one. Um, if people stop, like if people stop taking it out then they can sell it at you know some sort of book sale they can do whatever they want with it if a different library next county over needs the book they'll send it over and then you know somebody in that library system can check out that book right they can do whatever they want with it ebooks are library specific um or library system specific mm -hmm. um so you can't do that sort of interlibrary <laughs> loan and what happens is um, ebooks theoretically never, you know, they never go bad. They never break. The spines don't crack. They don't need to be duct taped together they because they they're digital. They don't depreciate in the same way. They right? don't depreciate exactly. in the same way. And so when ebooks became really, really big, what happened is that um, the publishers of ebooks created a system of ebooks, licensing ebooks to libraries so that it kind of mirrored what what happened when a physical book was purchased mm -hmm. so oftentimes first of all the copies are much more expensive than if you the you know the consumer are buying a book directly from wherever you buy the book from so whereas our ebooks might cost ten dollars um ebooks for libraries can cost fifty dollars a hundred dollars yeah. etc on the basis that like it's going to get lent to a bunch of people. So Correct. the price needs to be a little bit Correct. higher. Correct. Yeah. Um, different publishers have different limitations about when these ebooks expire or if they do. Typically, if the ebooks are available <laughs> in perpetuity forever, um, then they charge way more money. If the books are, you know, available for a period of two years or a period of five years or after a period of X number of loans, they're less expensive. Um, so all of that is to say uh, it's complicated, right? Mm -hmm. And all of these are kind of like single-use licenses, so only one person can take the book out at a time, et cetera. Um, so what Macmillan is doing is they are implementing their windowing process into their ebook terms. So previously, ebooks were available on a two-year licensing basis. Or if fifty-two, if it was checked out fifty-two times, so whichever one came first. Um, so the idea is that somebody would get through it every two weeks, and there would be somebody waiting right yeah. when that happened, right? right? Yeah. Um, and those are available for sixty dollars. Now, what is happening is Macmillan is selling one copy to a library system, one copy in perpetuity when the book comes out 
for $30, so half the normal price, mm-hmm. um, and they can keep that copy forever. But what then? What they're doing then is they are not allowing any additional copies of this book to be sold <clears throat> under their old like terms mm-hmm. for eight weeks. So let's talk for a second about, like, on like a broad scale, like what that means yeah. and what they believe has happened at the result of, or as a result of the experiment they ran, mm-hmm. right? Which is that, like, they did this program where they said, okay, we're gonna have ebooks for libraries come out a little bit later than ebooks for retail customers, mm-hmm. and we're just gonna see what happens. We're gonna see, and what they claim to have seen, and we're gonna get into in a second how. We're not so sure that that's what they found because they didn't really provide good information. Um, they seem to believe that um, libraries, at the end of this experiment, by um, by like depriving libraries for a, for like eight for weeks, eight weeks for eight weeks of the um, of a new release, that their sales went up. And so their belief is that is now that libraries are cutting into their book their ebook sales. Correct. Ba- ba- that's like the fundamental belief we have to start with. Is like. Macmillan now believes that the library is a negative force on their book sales. Correct. And so, I mean, that is something that I think is worthy of examination and critique from a number of angles. And, like, the place to start, and obviously um, this is something that librarians have a huge issue with. It's something that, you know, anyone who works in... um, or anyone with any familiarity with the library would immediately kind of get their hackles up about, right? Because it's it's basically saying that, um, you know, this publisher believes that their relationship to, you know, a public library is one that is hurting them. And I think that beyond just this particular situation, that's a pretty major development because um, it's the sort of thing that, like, I feel like, Traditionally, it's but you know, in like the fabric of book publishing and the fabric of like the American literary scene, the relationship between publishers and libraries is always one that has been talked about as positive, right? Like it's one that you know, yeah. libraries are you know, it's good that libraries help people have access to books. Like, yeah, not only do they <clears throat> provide access, but there there have been studies where like. of library users will, if they discover a a project or an author at the library, they'll actually buy that book. Yeah. You know, and it's like it's a way to it's a way to have a very risk free sort of way to introduce yourself to new people. Of course. It's practically marketing. Yeah. Right. Like and so like (laughs) I want to read this paragraph from, you know, someone responded to this. um, This woman, uh, Jasmine West, she's a librarian. Um, she wrote an op-ed in CNN, and she got to this one... She's against this, and we're going to get into why in a second, but she had this one set of statistics that I think is really interesting, and I want to kind of get into it here. So she writes, Public libraries in the United States purchase a lot of ebooks and circulate ebooks a lot. According to the Public Library Association, electronic material circulation in libraries has been expanding at a rate of 30% per year, and public libraries offered over 391 million ebooks to the patrons in 2017. Those libraries user, those library users also buy books. Over 60% of frequent library users users have also bought a book written by an author they first discovered in a library, according to Pew. Libraries offer free display space for books in over 16,000 locations nationwide. Even Macmillan admits that library that quote Library reads are currently 45% of our total digital ebook reads. 
But instead of finding a way to work with libraries on an equitable win-win solution, Macmillan imp implemented a new and confusing model and blamed libraries for being successful at encouraging people to read their books. And so before we get into any of those statistics, that last bit I mm -hmm. think is really important what she's drawing from that, which is that she, she's correct, I think, in pointing out that Macmillan is basically saying libraries are too good at their jobs. Yeah. She's saying How dare they like, convince people to read books and right. partake in this in this you know centuries old custom. They're giving away our sauce for free too much is basically what this guy is saying. Or in I say this guy because we had like it, it, most of this is like in relation to a direct yeah. announcement from the Macmillan from publisher. John Sargent who's the CEO yeah, of Macmillan. Exactly. So yep. it's it's just tricky to me because like, this is the sort of thing that I guess it feels sort of inevitable that we would kind of reach the point where um, publishers who, you know, big picture, we've acknowledged in basically every episode of this stupid podcast that we've ever had, <laughs> um, are under the squeeze of a larger corporation um, and have kind of reached a point where they need to find some answers, they need to find some better places to squeeze out money. And it's worth mentioning at this point, folks, that the standard. Um, author royalty rate for an ebook is 25% compared yeah. to at best half of that for print books. And with that, with that statistic, so basically you're saying that authors get more of a cut. Out authors of the get more of a cut and out of a product that is that is sold for less. Exactly. So that's the other part yeah. of it, is that um, an ebook is like you don't make as much money on an ebook. If a publisher no. had their choice, they would sell only print hardcovers, right? Like you could, um, like the even with all is, of the infrastructure that's required right, to sell print hardcovers, right? No, you would because it's it's something you know the royalty rate is going to be a little bit less. You know, it's the cost is going to be a little bit higher because Amazon hasn't had as good a luck at reducing what that book is worth. And if you listen to our past episode about um, like what we feel Amazon is doing to you know just the value of a book at large. This is kind of almost ground zero in a lot of ways. It's like because they've they've convinced us that an ebook is worth very little. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just an electronic file. What could that be worth? You know, it doesn't and expire. It exactly. doesn't require anything. You press a button and it shows up. Yeah, it's they make it seem like this fleeting thing that shouldn't have any you know price evaluated to it. And it's just to me, Laura, I look at something like this where a publisher could say, you know, what our problem is. A problem is that. The problem is libraries. And especially like, so just like making sense of all the statistics we just saw. And what I think they say to me, and you tell me if you agree, is that even though they're giving books away for free, and giving is a very strong term. Well, they for pay they're for lending, the books. They're lending books out for free after paying for them themselves. And they pay more than a book's retail price. Correct. By, usually by double or more. The statistics, I think, show us here, especially this bit about how, um, and this is, I think, the really like earth shattering one to me that is really, I, I find it to be almost heartwarming in a way. It says 60% of frequent library users have also bought a book written by an author they first discovered in a library. And what that says to me is that libraries are good business. They are good business. They're good marketing. They're good ways to, and they're provably good ways of introducing readers to to authors. And to when you're not going to spend money for your authors to do book launch events, <laughs> guess who exactly. hosts launch events guess who for shows free? People, guess who shows people your author's work? It's libraries. And 
I just think that we've reached a point right now where it feels like pretty straightforward and provable logic to me that libraries are a very healthy and good part of the publishing ecosystem. Um, and here it feels like we kind of have the first semblance of someone saying, well, hey, wait a second. It sucks that they're giving away our books for free <laughs> at that rate. And I just, I find that worrisome in a lot of ways, not just because of this story, but just kind of in general, like the word I keep coming back to, and I know I said it a lot when we were doing the, you know, the pre-show for this, but it's just the word antisocial. Mm. And Explain I mean, what you mean by I that. mean that in the truest sense of the term where it's like, you know, if you take social to mean like the things we do together, right? Like a society, a community, you know, a, any sort of like collective community driven effort for someone, for a company to say, actually, we don't want our products to be a part of that in nearly the same capacity they used to be because we feel that people are getting them too much for free. Mm -hmm. And we feel that people instead should not be going to a collective space to encounter our work, but instead should be at every possible turn should be paying us immediately for <laughs> it. Right. Like it's very like, in, I mean, my political agencies are not hidden on this show, but it's very privatized, right? Like it's, it's very much a, um, it's a situation that sort of like undermines like the idea of like collective readership, you know, the idea of a culture that, where it's important that people are able to kind of encounter authors and books on their own terms without having to front the, you know, whatever amount you want to charge for your ebook or print book up yeah. front. And I just find it, I find it troubling and I worry that it's going to be, even though it's, I think, provably wrong logic, I worry that more people are going to chase this yeah. logic. And it, so it feels to me a lot like cutting off the nose to spite the face. Yeah, exactly. Right, where you have a, you know, for-profit, organization mm -hmm. that is you know basically stopping themselves from getting this long-term investment you know like we we always talk about how um marketing can get a book into a bookstore but booksellers mm -hmm. get it out yeah well i mean that, the same thing is true for libraries right even though it's not a direct one-to-one -one, like mm -hmm. you know you recommend this book they'll buy the book um but it seems to me like in search of this profit, we're we're sort of handicapping a system that provides us more opportunities for sales. Right. So like I, and I have a very like deep and personal stake in this because I am a library user. I use my library yeah. every day and I use right. the digital services that my library provides. I haven't been in a physical library since I got my library card. Right. And right. so like, well, the new one as an adult. Right. So I, I went in and I got the got it. And then but I use it literally every day. And one thing that so like I've always been a really, really big reader. Right. Um, and I when I started working in publishing, my reading went down significantly and I wanted to find a way to up that. And so the, these past three years, and I've been I've been using my library since long before that, but these past three years, I've been tracking the number of books that I read and like books read for fun. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I I think um, the first year I was at somewhere along the lines of 55. Last year I was along the lines of 65. Right. Um, or 70 and now we're you know barely eight months into the year and I'm you know already in the 50s 
and yes and (laughs) i mean and that's not meant to make you feel bad but like what what that means is like okay so i buy a lot of books sure but when i am reading a print book like i buy the book because i want to support the author and i want to have the book on my shelf and i want to be able to lend it to people but a lot of the times even when i buy the physical copy i'm going to want to listen via my library to that book because i know i'll get to it faster Mm -hmm. because just you know because of my personal situation and because i have a life and because like i like to be able to listen to books when i'm driving my car right and so like for me it is so strange (laughs) that a publisher somebody who creates content wants to like stop and inhibit access to that content like you know the more available your books are the more people are going to be able to read the more the the ease with which they access them the more they're going to be able to read you know there's i i think that that figure of 30 per like the the number of digital offerings have increased by 30 percent in the past year like that number is not like the 30 percent of people you know were were reading print books and now they're doing audiobooks or ebooks no what that means is people are reading more there are people who wouldn't be normally reading that have access to formats that work better for their life and they're accessing that and so i think um a lot of the time publishers will look at their sales as if you know, they're just they're just numbers to be taken from somewhere else. They had they're competing against, you know, McMillan's competing against Simon and Schuster and Random House and Harper Collins. Um, not that readership very much in the United States is an ever growing pie. Ideally, that the kind that you don't keep in your fridge, <laughs> like or that you do keep in your fridge, I should say. Please keep the pie in the fridge. Please folks. keep the pie in the fridge, but. <laughs> But I think the with the idea of technology and access, there that I mean, we're growing our readership. We're teaching more people to value books and to value the diversity of of technologies that allow us to be able to to view that which becomes a terrible film. Yeah. And <laughs> and yeah. so for me, I just like for me, this is not an issue of, well, libraries are hurting us, our bottom line, so we're able to produce fewer books. Because we've talked in a, a litany of ways about how publishers are making poor business decisions because they're doing, they're working in something that's an art and a business, and they're yeah. treating it just like a business. Yeah. And this action is treating it just like a business. But I want you to imagine something with me, Eric. Please. Imagine that... Instead of looking at libraries as a barrier to profit, what if instead they looked at libraries as a tool to be leveraged and a yeah, and a and absolutely. a partner so that they could, you know, make a dent at which that which rhymes with Schmamazon <laughs> and can kind of take a bigger part of the marketplace. Like imagine if, okay, great, we understand, even if the numbers are true, and you know, the Macmillan announcement had some kind of they declined to elaborate on what their figures meant and, and we'll we'll circle back around to the idea of these figures. But even even if that's true and forty per forty five percent of their reads come from libraries like imagine imagine if the publisher looked at that and said okay we're acknowledging this problem of this you know this launch window where there are 
like the library's access is limiting our profits. What if mm -hmm. instead we don't window these titles, but we make it more easily accessible so we can so we can get the buzz we want and hit the list we need and use the libraries as a tool? Like what if we teamed up instead and maybe, okay, maybe for the first three months, libraries can lend out as many copies of whatever book that they want and they charge, you know, a flat fee per rental mm -hmm. for those books. And then after that three months, you can do kind of the normal ebook system. Yeah. But that way you're not you're using libraries as a way to launch your book and a way to promote it and a way to drive people away from Amazon. Because you know what happens, Eric, when people don't necessarily want to spend the money, but they really want to read the book, but they don't want to wait and you know, and there's a lot of reasons why somebody might not be able mm -hmm. to buy the book yep. for at, at, you know, full Barnes and Noble list price. They might go to their library and say, oh, wait, I'm number 200 and there's only one available copy. I'm going to go to Amazon. Where does the next <laughs> cheapest? It is. So your, your like analogy about, you know, cutting off the nose despite the face, I think is exactly right. Because what ends up happening is like Amazon loves this scenario, right? Where suddenly the only place that a um, publisher decides it's viable to put their ebooks is Amazon because mm -hmm. that's where, um, as you point out, like people are going to go next if they can't get it at their library because that's where it's going to be It's cheapest. also the most convenient. Like, exactly. Like, so all, the, all that kind of you stuff. You press a button, um, it shows up yeah. on your Kindle. And like, I guess what troubles me about, you know, like that conclusion is that, and I'm reading now from um, an op-ed here from, this, uh, from a man named Steve Potish, Who's the founder and CEO of Overdrive, which is an ebook company? Yeah, um, who works with libraries specifically right. to to lend out books to people. And so he here he's talking about um, you know the claim that uh, Sargent made, and again he's the publisher of Macmillan. Um, Mr. Sargent's letter claimed that forty five percent of the ebook reads in the U.S. are now being borrowed for free from libraries. No definition of an ebook read was offered, nor any details or data sharing on how this conclusion was reached. This claim offered without any support is ridiculous. And like where I get with that line is that it feels a little bit as though the experiment was a little bit of a sideshow mm. for what they wanted to do the whole time. You know, like they, it's just magical that, you know, they did this kind of, you know, horse and pony show for however many weeks. And it turned out that, oh, wow, it confirmed exactly what we thought beforehand and now they're doing it. And now as we scrutinize with their findings and like the data that they aren't actually able to provide not only any real information, but like no definitions for their terms. Like ebook reads is different than And like, that's not a term anybody no, else uses. No, it's not a term that anyone uses. It's not, it doesn't mean lending. It doesn't mean purchases. It doesn't mean anything. It's, and like one of the points in, you know, both of these op-eds we've been reading are like, um, you know, not everything that gets lent is read. You know, like the reading is something separate. And... It just troubles me that we've kind of reached a point where it feels as though they've intuitively decided that the library is bad. Mm. And I guess, like, I think about, well, why is that? Like, what's like what's the problem? And it gets back, like, we did a really, we did an episode a long time ago about, and this is going to be a totally separate point, but about pitch wars, right? And I remember one of the things we talked about was how um, in times of a squeeze, right, like when there are multiple parties in sort of a, a food chain that 
have to figure out how to make it work, often at the expense of each other, you're going to do things that you're going to try to exert leverage to help yourself wherever you can. And that usually means on the people who you have leverage over as opposed to the people squeezing you, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, if you look at Macmillan, they really don't, at this point, have much of an ability to, like, tell Amazon to, hey, price our ebooks higher because <laughs> they're worth that or do anything like that that would actually, like, help. So instead, where do they turn? They turn to the library. They, they say, punch down. Yeah, they, you punch down. That's, that's a great way to put it. Like, you... All you can do when everybody is getting screwed over is you punch down. And that's, to me, what this feels like a little bit. And I just get, I don't know, I just, like, back to that idea of like it being antisocial. Like, this is the end result of letting an entity that really isn't a part of book culture run all of book culture. <laughs> it's like, you let, we let Amazon do all this stuff. And now the result, like the residual effects are going to be publishers deciding that libraries are bad. And this will not be like if this logic holds, you're going to see this prop up with print books. You're going to see, oh, wow, maybe we want to change the, the arrangement for paperbacks. And audiobooks. Exactly. Exactly. You're going to mm-hmm. see all like if this sticks and they're able to prove through whatever kind of, you know, hokey science that this has helped. Like you're going to see the erosion. Like, you know, we've seen. Like, the library is already under siege, right? Like, we saw those, like, there was that ridiculous post, I want to say it was, like, a couple months ago, where someone was like, I wish that, you know, there was, like, a, you know, an app where I could, like, pay a subscription fee and just, like, rent books whenever I wanted, like, and they wanted it to be this, like, privatized service. And, and this, they didn't want it to be a library. Right, right, yeah, because that's, like, where, like, poor people went. Yeah. Like, it was like they basically like invented like a privatized version of the library like from scratch just because like but like that's where we're headed in a lot of ways because the idea of like the public good or like the idea that you know um you know like to take a further step back like people pay taxes to go into a library right not very many sure but like it's theoretically something that we are all paying for already and it just feels like an erosion like, it's that term again, antisocial, right? Like, it's just back to that idea that this public service that has worked for everybody for a very long time, we've decided they're the problem, they're the reason for our new problem. And I just think that that's, um, I mean, I can see how they would come to that conclusion, but it's one that to me feels very short sighted. And more than that, it just feels against the grain of everything you're supposed to be is like eventually you have to make a moral judgment you know and it's like this just doesn't seem to me to be the place to make it but i don't know so i would like to end this episode by telling everybody to go use your fucking yeah. library <laughs> um if, if i you know right now download the overdrive app download the libby app which is my yeah. personal favorite yeah. it's really really good for audiobooks and ebooks and you know, like if you live in a particular area that has poor, like a like a not very robust library service, most library systems will allow you to register your library card in your home county or your hometown right. with the adjacent one. So yeah. like I my home my home library system is the St. Paul Public Libraries. Yeah. Um, well, guess what? The Hennepin County Library System next door, way bigger. Guess who gets most of her audiobooks from the Hennepin County Library System? Me. And it's like, that's what's, like, not to beat on a non-book point, but that's because that's what's good for people. Yes. Like, we've invented this thing, like, you know, 
very funny piece of like common wisdom right now is that if someone proposed a library, right? Like if you said, hey, I think we should have this place where people just pay some taxes and you can go and, and get you can just internet rent books for free, and, get and you rent can just have books. the space and you can rent books. Like it would get shot down as like communist garbage so fast <laughs> right now. Like people would absolutely rail against the library from scratch at the moment because we've drifted right in all these ways. But like it's, it's just such a clear example of the best of what we could be, right? And this, to me, feels like the first in what I worry will be sort of an onslaught against yeah. the very concept of it, and that, that worries me. Also, get you a librarian. Get you because, a librarian. Because here's the thing. Whenever somebody... So everybody is always like, okay, Laura, you work in publishing. Like, what what book should I read? Um, and the answer is always no. like, well, uh, I've either read something that's coming out in one year yep. or came out four years ago. Yep. Um, so then I go to my librarian friends and I say, hey, librarian friends, you're hip. You're with it. Mm -hmm. What should I recommend to this person? And I just like have these people in my pocket yep. that can recommend new things to me yep. that help me with my job that make me a happier person. Because they're like like booksellers. Librarians are people who talk to readers, right? Yes. Like they're the ones talking to kids. They're the ones talking to anyone who comes in looking for something. They're they're the ones who decide what goes on the shelves. Yeah, it's they, they inform. They end up their knowledge ends up for free informing all of publishing you know they don't get nearly compensated enough for it but like to then turn around and say actually libraries are bad like i just that it's deplorable to anyway me, so everybody go to your library use your app tell us what you are reading or listening to or checking out from your library and we will see you for a regular episode next week bye